0: Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're obviously going through the book of Isaiah. And I grew up and went to the beach every June. It was a great privilege and joy to be able to do that. My um, dad's side of the family would come to this big old house that they would rent, um, sometimes over 20 people. And my favorite time of day was was mid-morning. That would be the time we would go out to the beach. Uh, All the cousins would be out there. Um, building sandcastles and surfing the waves we would go into the dunes and uh, go into little tidal pools and all those things were wonderful but what I really looked forward to most of all was the uh, the ringing of the dinner bell and we called it dinner even though it was the midday meal but uh, around noon every day uh, my aunt Aunt Mimi would come out and she would um, start ringing this kind of rusty huge rusty bell out on the porch of the house and when that thing started to ring, um, we would just take off sprinting up to the house and uh, wash our feet off in the hose and push to the front of the line. And um, there would be this amazing uh, low country buffet. We were in South Carolina by the coast. So this woman named Maggie, uh, who was a culinary genius, she would we, would, we would hire her to come every day and cook in house this meal where um, she would hand bread these uh, flounder fillets that that we would get that morning. They were probably caught that morning and uh, she would fry them. And uh, then there was cheese grits. There was uh, homemade slaw, the likes of which I had never had since. I don't know what she put in them. There was cornbread that was homemade. There was sun tea. Uh, There was homemade peach cobbler. It was probably the best food I've ever had. And um, I was just thinking as I was reading Isaiah how ridiculous uh, and absurd it would have been for us when Aunt Mimi started ringing that dinner bell and all that it entailed, everything that was behind the dinner bell, for us to stay down at the beach and to refuse to come up and have that banquet. But that's what Israel was doing in Isaiah's day. They were uh, not regarding God's call. It was not a call to do anything difficult at all. It was a call to come and to feast And to enjoy themselves and to come to a great banquet and and israel refused to come in and so god has to keep calling again and again and again as he does in this passage many times there's so many imperatives where he's asking them to just come in he says in verse two please come and delight yourselves in rich food i mean what a thing to have to ask someone to do please come and please have this chocolate cake please have this ice cream uh, please have this whipped cream. Please have your favorite meal. That's what God is having to do here. He's laid out a great banquet for Israel. And now he's calling them to come and feast. And that's what I want to look at. This, uh, this great banquet which calls for a great feast. And of course the banquet is a metaphor for something else. Namely, um, this abundant forgiveness and pardon. And this complete vindication which God is offering his people all the work that the servant did, that Jonah talked about last week, all that he gave to, to his people, that's the, that's the banquet. And so the feasting is to eat hungrily uh, from the bounty of God's love and forgiveness and grace. So those are the two things I want to look at. The great banquet, which calls for the abundant feasting. So we'll start with, uh, with verse 7, where God um, talks about his abundant pardon. Return to the Lord, that he may have compassion and abundantly pardon. Again, what kind of idiot would not want to come to a person who is offering compassion and total forgiveness? And But that's what Israel's doing here. Um, Isaiah is writing this in the heart of the sin of Israel around 700 B.C. And in 100 years, she's going to actually be sent into exile. For her many sins and she is refusing God's grace and even now even in 700 he's already saying I'm going to abundantly pardon your sins all of your desire for uh, achievements and all of your desire for military might and power and self-righteousness and all of the loot and the greed that comes from worshiping the gods of Babylon all that is the empire. Whether it's Babylonian or Persian, those are the two empires that Israel was in bondage to. All that is of the empire that they were yearning for, um, God is saying, I'm going to pardon you. Even now, before you commit those sins, I'm going to pardon you. I'm telling you right now that I offer you abundant pardon. Return to me, and I will give you abundant pardon, even for sins she has not committed. So this is an overwhelming level of forgiveness. I think we're all willing to forgive to some extent. Um, I know that I'm willing to forgive um, Margie a little bit if she will earn that forgiveness. My wife, if, as long as she makes a really good apology, or at least decent apology. Um, but there's got to be a certain amount of contrition there. And um, if she doesn't sound sorry enough, or if she's not specific enough, I don't want some general um, apology. I want some specifics. Could you give me some facts and dates and... Uh, If she doesn't do those things, I'm not inclined to forgive her. Um, But God's forgiveness here is of a different sort. Uh, This forgiveness is abundant pardon. It is uh, coming to us before we apologize. It is uh, completely unconditional. And it is indulgent. It is excessive. And it is luxurious. He compares it to wine and milk which are luxury items, this is in verse 1, uh, without money and without price. So it doesn't cost anything. It's all you can eat, and it's a buffet. And um, a few years ago, when we were going on sabbatical, which is what a pastor does every seven years, they have a few months off, so the church graciously gave us a sabbatical, we went to Florida, we went to SeaWorld, and somehow we ended up with four all-day all-you-can-eat passes. I don't know if anyone's ever done these things, but amusement parks, they'll usually offer you an all-you-can-eat all-day pass to any of the food kiosks or any of the restaurants in there. And um, I think it costs, you know, like $100, which would have been incredible to have them. But not only that, they were free. These things were free. And so um, I kind of went crazy and probably stopped about eight or nine different food kiosks around the park. This is in SeaWorld, I was less interested in the dolphins and the killer whales than I was in like the, the, the Key West sandwich shop. I still remember the name. And the one that really I kind of um, got sidetracked in was the Spice Island Cafe. And I remember, this is the same food that Busch Gardens has because it's the same company that oversees these. And they had uh, these, this carved turkey sandwich, barbecue, French fries, salad, fruit, twist cones, chocolate cake, uh, carrot cake, Um, Even the children's sandwiches that they had gotten too many of, I wrapped them up in napkins. And so I laughed with huge bulging pockets. Um, But all you can eat and it's free and it's amazing. And that's what that's what is going on here with Isaiah. He wants them to think about the richest food and to delight themselves in it. In verse two, delight yourself in rich food. Again, what a command to have to give to God's people. That there's this banquet of all you can eat, uh, free of charge, grace. And he says in verse 2, um, eat what is good and uh, delight yourself in rich food. And the, the word delight yourself in Hebrew means to live softly or delicately. It's, uh, in other words, it's kind of pampering yourself. Pamper yourself and spoil yourself with grace and forgiveness. just kind of luxuriating that and then rich food is literally fatness because back then to have fat the fat of an animal was the best thing that was to them the the thing that was the rarest treat Uh, the greatest pleasure was fatness and so the the best steak the best bacon that's what they're saying you need to completely let yourself go and enjoy this stuff and um, last week in the prayer requests, um, there were several for eating disorders. There were three or four that people had written down about eating disorders. And I thought, isn't it amazing that I'm looking at this passage where God is saying to delight yourself in rich food and milk and wine. And, and that um, God uses all this language um, about food that is, again, it is, uh, it is excessive. It is it is. Beyond what is needed by far. Beyond what is, what is needed. And, and God's saying, that's what my grace is like. You know I, know, I know eating disorders are more complicated than that. But just again and again and again in God's word, he's like, food is so good. And my, my grace is like food. It is delicious. Uh, it is something that you should um, indulge yourselves in. Verse 2 says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why not have good bread? why do you labor for that which does not satisfy why not satisfy yourself he said and it's interesting that the way that god um, kind of has this mission to recapture planet earth comes through things like this table right here i mean that in itself is an amazing thing that uh, we um, who are christians believe in a religion where one of the means of god's grace coming to the planet is that he would have um, something like this bread and wine and in the Old Testament, there are feasts after feast after feast that are prescribed to the people, and uh, Israel wouldn't do it for whatever reason. They wouldn't go and have these feasts, and God keeps saying, "Go and feast and enjoy and have banquets." And um, this is um, part of the, uh, the banquet is, um, is just having everything you need right in front of you for nothing, that God gives you everything. And it seems like humans want to live off of the the stale kind of bread uh, of merit, of of earning. We we so want to earn things and have our rights. And we want to be able to police each other and rank each other. And we we restrict the intake of grace so that we can be heroic or sacrificial or make a name for ourselves. We would rather pay back our debts than have them forgiven. That's just what we're like. And so God has to say in verse 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Do not imagine that the way that you go about your modus operandi is not mine. That is not the way I operate. And so he's assuming there, he's assuming that you and I don't uh, walk around and move around in the ways of grace. That in fact it's the opposite. That, That forgiveness is not the way that we typically operate. People will come to me. And they're mad about something. They're mad with someone. They're upset with a father or a mother or a brother or sister or husband or wife, a uh, co-worker, someone in their small group, uh, someone in the church, uh, whoever it is, they'll, they'll be angry. And then um, usually at some point in the conversation, I'll say, or maybe later on, maybe a second or third conversation, but I'll say, how do you think forgiveness plays into this? Um, you know, what do you do with this idea that God has forgiven you? And that we're called to forgive other people. And uh, no one has ever replied, oh, my gosh, I forgot forgiveness. I forgot about forgiveness. Yes, I should. I need to work on that. I need to get to that forgiveness. There's always this assumption like, you know, duh, Forget. obviously I've done that. I mean, that was like step one. Totally forgive them already. And um, there's this assumption we have that it's kind of instinctive, like it's a no-brainer, like forgiveness is just reflexive, that it's... Um, Something we just get naturally as human beings. And God is saying, not at all. Uh, Your your ways are not about forgiveness. That if you check your heart, actually, um, forgiveness takes a very, very long time. And is very difficult. As high as the heavens are above the earth, verse 9, so are my ways higher than your ways. And that is an image of forgiveness being way up in the Himalayas you know, 20,000 feet plus, way above the tree line. It's a, it's a, it's a country up there, a high country uh, where all the merit is gone, all of the earning is gone, all of the self-righteousness is gone. Um, uh, up there with the glaciers and the fog and the ice, there's abundant pardon. There's no seeking payback in that land. There's no holding grudges or nursing resentments in that area of the world. And there is no withholding intimacy to punish people. So God is saying, you don't know much about this land, but it's there. And I'm calling you to it. It's a banquet. It's a feast. And it's, it's not just that we're forgiven. It's also that we're, um, we're vindicated. And they're actually a little bit different. Uh, it's not just that God doesn't hold stuff over your head. He also says, I pity the fool that does. You know, I, anyone, if anyone else tries to condemn you, it's not going to happen. In verse 17, their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Their vindication is from me. Again, he's saying this about the sinful people, Israel. He's saying, uh, don't mess with Israel. You know, they're, they're sending it like crazy against me. But anyone that speaks against you, no weapon that is formed against you will stand. Um, I'm going to vindicate them. When I was a young pastor, there was a guy who started spreading rumors about me. It was terrifying uh, that I was a bad pastor, that I was excluding people. Uh, I couldn't sleep for several nights. It was probably uh, the first time in my life I couldn't sleep very well, and um, I was so internally devastated. And I realized, as I was processing it, it wasn't that that I wasn't upset about losing the guy's friendship. I mean, we were friends, that hurt. But what really upset me was the idea that, um, that my name was out there being kind of corrupted as these, because I, I heard about it from other friends. So my, my biggest fear was that I was losing my reputation, that my reputation was being tarnished. And I couldn't sleep because I was so anxious about that. I'm sure all of you had that happen to some extent. And that's why verse 17 is so liberating where God says, every tongue that rises against you in judgment will be refuted. And you don't have to do it. That's saying God will do that. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment will be refuted. There was a mob that was standing over a woman in Galilee and she was caught in adultery and they had stones these angry men had stones they were about to kill her and jesus comes up breaks up the mob drives them away and says uh, he who was without sin cast the first stone he bends down he looks at the woman he says who condemned you now and that's what isaiah is talking about um, their vindication is from me your vindication is from me so imagine that person in your life that is standing over you with a stone And God uh, is saying, um, you're vindicated. Isaiah, every tongue that rises in judgment will be refuted. Jesus says, where are your accusers now? I love how Paul puts this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect when it is God who justifies? Who is to condemn when Christ Jesus is the one who died, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is even now interceding for him? Who shall bring any charge against you when it is God who justifies? Who is to condemn? So that's Isaiah 55. It's an all you can eat, free of charge, on the house banquet. You can never earn it. And so you can never lose it. You never earned it. So you can't lose it. That's the banquet. Now, a great banquet calls for great feasting. That's the second point. A great banquet calls for great feasting. When I turned 30, my, um, my wife, Margie, threw me a huge surprise party. And um, all my friends and family from around the country made this huge sacrifice to, to drive to New Jersey, to New Jersey, and to come and celebrate my birthday in New Jersey. Huge sacrifice. And Margie was very sneaky because she had um, taken me out to eat to my favorite restaurant, the Macaroni Grill, We were at the Macaroni Grill celebrating. And meanwhile, um, all these people as we left came in to the apartment and she had made a cake. Um, That was in the neighboring apartment. They brought the cake over, they decorated, um, they um, brought presents and snacks. And so get back from the Macaroni Grill, open the door and everyone calls out, happy birthday, Ben, surprise. And uh, it was amazing. Somebody took a picture of my face at that moment. And uh, it's one of the best moments of my life. But what if I had remained outside the apartment and just said, you know, I've actually got a lot to do. I appreciate y'all coming, but I'm going to head down to the library. Got a lot of work to do. Got to make a name for myself. You know, if somebody had taken a picture of Margie's face at that moment, that would have been one of the worst moments of her life. Which is why Isaiah... Says again and again and again, all these imperatives. Verse one, four times come, 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 come. Come. He's imploring you, and he, he implored Israel to come and to partake, to delight yourself. Eat good food, verse two. Delight yourself. Verse three, let your soul live, implying that normally you don't, that normally. You're letting your soul die because of your restriction of spiritual food. He tells him in verse 4 and 5, look, look at the banquet. Okay, take your eyes and put them on that food and realize how incredible this banquet is. Verse 6, he says, seek and call. Verse 7, he says, return. It's almost embarrassing for him to have to ask so many times. And there's some exclamation points even in there because he wants you so badly to come. And feast on the banquet that he's prepared for you. And we know that uh, our Lord was very big on feasts. If you've read the Gospels at all, you know that he went to a lot of feasts. And he also threw some feasts. And he also talked about feasts. And several parables, at least two, are about people not coming to feasts. Which in the parable is very insulting. It's a very terrible thing. In one of them, the king gets very upset because... The people in his realm are too busy to come to his feast. They have more important things going on. They're like me if I had gone to the library. And they all have this business to do, so they're not willing to to come to the feast of the king. And he gets very upset about that. And another one, the father of a family becomes very upset when his oldest child will not come in and celebrate a feast for his youngest child, who who had been finally found after many years. And the father had killed the fattened calf. That was breaking the bank. The biggest party of the family's entire life. They probably had the whole town come over. It was, it was like a big thing for the whole family name that they had thrown this feast. And the older son, who represents the family, would not come in. And it, it made the father very, very upset. And, and I think Jesus is saying to Isaiah here that, you know, the great tragedy of life for a human being. The great tragedy is not to come into the feast that God has prepared for you. And that to remain outside, like the older brother, of pardon and vindication is the very definition of tragedy and self-destruction. Because that is where life is found, inside of the banquet. Verse 10 and 11 use the metaphor of rain and snow coming down from the sky and watering the earth making it bring forth and sprouts. Again, this is all food. He's talking about food here, how the, this life-giving rain and snow come down. They make the seed come up. Um, they create bread. And God is saying, so is my word. That's what, and when he says word there, he's, he's talking about this, he, the word of grace he just spoke, of abundant pardon and vindication my word, he's saying, has that kind of power to bring to life. I hate it when my um, window boxes, the flowers are, are decaying, especially the, the petunias, um, they just wither so quickly. And I'll go over and I'll touch the soil. And, um, of course, it's totally dry. Sometimes after only a few days, uh, haven't watered it at all, and the roots have almost died. And um, if your soul goes on too long without abundant pardon. Uh, God is saying here that um, your, your thoughts are going to be dried out with guilt. And the stories that you tell yourself about yourself and about other people are going to go very dark. And they're going to become um, very scary things. And without abundant pardon, um, the, the rain and the snow are not there to bring forth the life and the fruit. And if you don't have vindication for too long, then your inner thoughts begin to wither, that you start believing these things about other people and what they think about you, and you start believing their words about you, and, and, and you feel condemnation. And, and this is why, by the way, that Christians evangelize. I know that's a word that's kind of out of favor today. We don't like to talk about evangelism um, and maybe the way it's been done in the past has been kind of ugly, you know, like checking off uh, a, little, a little box of things to do or making a notch in your belt for converts. But um, what this says here is that, that God's word literally can keep a person from despair or maybe divorce or self-harm or even spiritual death. That by speaking the word of grace and talking about the banquet, of what God offers. It can bring someone to life. It can bring joy out of despair. It can bring um, peace out of chaos. In verse 12, it says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And then all of the nature, uh, all the elements of nature rejoicing with the people of Israel are thrown in there just to emphasize the joy and the peace that the banquet of God's forgiveness and vindication brings. I still sometimes um, just feel like a shiver of joy if I, if I read about um, some passage uh, in Mere Christianity about forgiveness, the, the book that I read when I, first, when I first felt it, and I'll read that passage again and I'll feel it again. Just the joy. There's a joy when you hear about forgiveness and you believe forgiveness. And I have actually watched someone, you know, they'll come in, their hands are shaking, their eyes are darting around, and I'll just tell them about the vindication of God that they are vindicated and that they don't have to worry about their reputation or what people say about them. And you can just see peace, just come over people. I, I hope you've had that experience of, of speaking the word of God to someone, whether they're a Christian or not, we don't even know all the time, but, but we can speak the word of God. And it's so powerful, it's so effective. In fact, the, the word here is that it's 100% effective, Isaiah would say. It'll always accomplish what God sent it out for. Verse 11, my word, again, this is not so much the Bible here as it is the message of grace. Uh, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty. In other words, it will, it will have brought life out of the ground. It will create life. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed And the thing for which I sent it. And I read that promise. I've thought about this before. And I thought, is it really true that that whenever the word of God goes out, when I preach or when I tell someone about the good news, is it really true that it doesn't uh, ever fail in its mission? That mission is always accomplished, that it always succeeds? I mean, again, I uh, I think of how little right we have to being pardoned. We have no right to be forgiven. We love retribution and we... Hates forgiveness. And so how can it be this effective? And I think the answer that Isaiah would give is what Jonah talked about last week, namely that there's this servant. And in the entire passage is predicated on the idea that the servant accomplished what he did in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54 and 5 are the result of Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, 11, God says, the righteous one, my servant, Shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And it is because of that that the banquet is even possible. Because the servant, God sends this person called the servant, capital T, capital S. And Isaiah 55 says that what the servant does is is glory. Look at verse 5: A nation that you did not know uh, shall run to you. He's talking to the servant here. A nation you did not know will run to you because the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. So what are you saying? God is, God is talking to his servant and saying, I'm going to bring in nations you've never even heard of because I'm going to glorify you. And so people who are in the far east and the far west and way down south, all over the globe, are going to come to you. They're going to run to you, not just come. They're going to run to you um, because they're going to see your glory. And they're gonna see the the, this glory there and they're gonna come they're gonna be attracted like moths to flame by your glory and when i think about running to see glory um i mean what 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 have you experienced lately where you said oh my gosh that's glorious that's amazing that's fantastic that's beautiful that's incredible glory is like beauty plus awe and majesty and usually it's a A sporting event, like the Super Bowl or the Olympics. If somebody went to one of those, you would say that was... that. I felt like there was glory there. That was glorious. And I I ran to that because it was so glorious. Or a concert. um, Or, you know, people talk about Hamilton. And they've seen Hamilton and their eyes, like, begin to light up as they talk about what Hamilton... Like, it's glory. Pure... Like, the glory cloud has come down. Or Les Mis, when I first saw that. um, Or your favorite band in concert. People have talked about U2 concerts for years like they were... Glory, pure glory. And the night before he died, um, this servant said uh, to his father. He prayed to his father. He said, um, "John seventeen one, Father," he says, "Father, the hour has come now. Glorify me, glorify me. I want people to see this glory and run to me. I want people from East Asia and from South Africa and from California to come running to me." I want you to glorify me. And he prays it again in 17.5. It's like he's hungry. And now, Father, now glorify me. And we know how the Father answered that request. He answered it abundantly. He, uh, he, was, he loves his son. And so to his servant who asked him to glorify him, the Father said, okay, I'm going to glorify you. Now bear their iniquities. Go to the cross. Pay the debt. Pay the debt so that they can have this all-you-can-eat banquet of grace and mercy and pardon. On the house, right? Taken care of by the house, paid for by another. God says, I'm going to take care of this, and that's glory. That's your glory. And so on the night that he was betrayed, uh, the servant...